The reading of the scriptures from Genesis chapter 9, reading verses 18 to 29. May God give us grace both to read and to hear his word in faith. Genesis 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our text this morning uh, is... Uh, another terrible occasion of uh, spiritual failure. Uh, certainly, it's a testimony to the depravity of uh, man. But every time we read of the failures in Genesis, as we have in Genesis 3, Genesis 6, it's a very subtle reminder on behalf of Moses uh, that there is a coming Redeemer who does not fail, who cannot fail uh, because of who He is. Uh, and even in our own personal failures in life, of which we engage in, uh, should uh, turn our hearts to the greatness of our Redeemer. Uh, first two uh, verses are a, a prologue which uh, focus us on the sons of Noah. And what are the sons of Noah to do? Well, they're to fill the earth according to the divine mandate of Genesis one twenty eight. Tragically, um, we know now that uh, the sons of Cain survived the flood in Noah's youngest son, Ham. Uh, and the sons of Cain are always with us. Uh, they are everywhere today, uh, working lawlessness. Uh, and they also seek to do harm to the church. So we should be aware of uh, the danger that is perpetually around us. And that in and of itself should remind us uh, to hope in our great Redeemer that He would uh, come quickly. Uh, so tragically, Noah, like Adam, uh, fails and falls, and the failure is uh, generational, verses 20 to 23. And uh, it, uh, like Adam and like the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, there's a curse. Uh, the failure of... Uh, these corporate figures uh, results in a curse, verses 24 to 25. Uh, 
As I have suggested, the text indirectly and directly is a parallel to the fall of Adam and Eve. Now think of the parallels. Uh, both are corporate figures. Uh, there is a garden. case of Noah, it's a vineyard, but again, vineyards uh, are a garden type of uh, geographic feature. There's fruit, uh, the forbidden fruit of, uh, uh, of which Eve partook, Adam and Eve partook. There's nakedness. And there's a curse and a blessing. So, the divine author of our text is reminding us that uh, men fail. Often they fail. Uh, as well here, the story uh, ends in verses 28 to 29 with an epilogue uh, with the death of Noah, reminding us of what? The curse of death. Uh, the great tragedy of the curse of the garden, Adam and Eve. They're driven out of the garden and they're going to die. All of us are going to die barring the coming of the Savior. So once again, this continual reminder of our need for a Redeemer. I'm always uh, somewhat uh, amused by people who think, well, I mean, I don't, I don't really need what you have by our socks. I was, you know, I'm, I'm glad you have the Savior, but I don't really need it. Well, you know, they really ought to go visit emergency rooms in a hospital. They really ought to go to nursing homes. Sometimes it kind of rips your heart out uh, when you see men of, and women of great accomplishments in the final stages of their life are reduced almost to infancy. They need for someone to totally care for them. So, uh, when men and women can solve this great, terrible event of death, then let them say, I don't, I don't need your Redeemer, Bower Socks. So Noah does die. Uh, it's a testimony to the curse of death because of sin. Uh, it is, however, important to remember something that, uh, namely, Noah was a was a righteous man. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, and 7, chapter 1. I love the phrase, he walked with God. Uh, but again, it's a reminder that the past is no guarantee of the future. And past success is never final. So it's a humbling fact for all of us. You think, well, I was very successful in my spiritual endeavors in life. Well, it's, it's not final in this life. There's always failure around the corner. Of course, thankfully, in God's grace, uh, the failure of his sons and daughters is not final either. So Noah begins farming. The Hebrew text is literally a man of the ground, which connects him to Adam. Uh, because Adam started out as dust from the ground, and he returned to dust. He plants a vineyard. Again, as I've suggested, parallel to the Garden of Eden. Uh, Noah drinks of the fruit of his labors. Now, in and of itself, it's not forbidden. But he drinks excessively of the fruit of his vineyard, and that is forgiven. 
pardon me, forbidden. Remind you of of, uh, the reality here that Noah becomes drunk. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15, Woe to you who uh, make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. As well, the New Testament text, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So it's not forbidden for Noah to partake in a measure of the fruit of his labors, but he does it excessively. He converts recreation into excess, and that is forbidden in the Scriptures. I sometimes wonder, did he... Um, he returns uh, to his uh, room. Uh, does he undress and then pass out? Um, regardless, he puts himself in extreme uh, spiritual peril. I'd remind you of a uh, greater danger uh, in a number of the warning passages of the Old Testament that use the metaphor of drunkenness. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 9, Be delayed and wake, blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. The metaphor there is a reference to false teachers and false prophets. They've bought into the reality of their false teachers and prophets so much so that they become spiritually drunk and do not understand their danger. But they live and walk in danger as we know, uh, in the coming captivity, uh, because they have forsaken the true prophets of God. It's even greater metaphor than all of that. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 6, And I trod down the people in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood upon the earth. So you and I are facing a time in which the wrath of God will intensify the coming of the Savior, when He will judge all of those who are not His sons and daughters. And truly throughout all eternity, they will be drunk on wrath. It's a great reminder that the answer to all of this is indeed the success of God the Son. Because of the effects of the wine, Noah does something that's terribly stupid. He uncovers himself in his tent. Yes, it's obviously it's private, but we know from Genesis 3 that nakedness was shameful. Not only was it shameful, it is shameful. Be very careful in our own uh, personal dress in life because we bear the image of God. Parallel to the curse in Genesis chapter 3. Before the fall, Adam and Eve did not experience shame. Because of the fall, uh, they experience incredible shame. And God has to provide for them a covering. They try to provide one that God rejects. Provides them the skin of an animal, meaning that blood is shed. Anticipating the great animal sacrifices that the nation of Israel would partake in, portending what? 
the coming of the Son of God, uh, who would shed his blood, the only covering spiritually. It's very interesting, uh, the, the word for nakedness is, there's a homonym to that word, uh, which is to be led into captivity. It's a reminder. Moses is reminding us of the great danger that's present in these words. As such, what does Noah do? Well, it tarnishes the image of God. We've been created in his image. Uh, we are to burnish that image and carry it into the world and fill the world with that image and his glory. But Noah conversely establishes condition for sin. His son Ham sees him. The, the phrase to uncover someone's nakedness uh, is in the Old Testament a sexual euphemism. But that phrase is not in this text. And so of the great terrible things that Ham does, it's not that. The point of the text is his voyeurism and the fact that he dishonors his father. So it's really an incredible reminder today because our culture is awash in pornography and immodesty. But we should learn from this text. Uh, as Christians, we, we should turn away from those things. Why should we? Because of the image of God. And because uh, it is shameful. I mean, it's an incredible industry. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars. Uh, but it should not and must not be found in the church. Because we carry that image in a profoundly spiritual way. That we should be aware of who we are and where we are and what we are as bearers of the divine image. Again, I do not believe that Ham violated his father because, again, in this text, Noah uncovers himself. Uh, but what he does do is he dishonors and disrespects his father, compounded by telling his brothers about it, probably in a very a dishonoring way. They take the appropriate action. Notice the text. Their honoring of their father, even in his sin. Think about that. Even in his failure, they honor their father by walking backwards to cover their father's shame. I think, again, another profound, important uh, reality in this text. Uh, we should respect all men and women, children, because they, because they are created in the image of God. So we should respect all, but especially parents, especially uh, elderly people. We should profoundly respect them, particularly if they know the Lord, because we know intuitively that they have fought many battles and come through and give us all a testimony that serving Christ is worth it. And therefore, they are worthy of our respect and honor. And we should accord it to them liberally. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.2, honor your father and mother. Yeah. 
one of the enduring lessons of, of Noah to me is, I mean, you can look at this text and throw rocks at him. But I have this personal philosophy that in the right circumstances, all of us can fail. You think about that. I just believe in the right storm. Any of us can get caught up and be whisked away like Noah. It's a reminder that we should be humble before God. One of the reasons I believe that is uh, in uh, the manner in which our Lord teaches us to pray with His great example, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. I know you know the words, but I'm connecting them to this reality that all of us should walk carefully. Because Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's why we're to walk circumspectly and carefully. Be careful what we set our eyes to. Be careful of the places we go. The things we do because of who we are, what we are. It's always the reminder uh, that our answer to the vagaries and the fallenness of the world in which we live is in God the Son. Uh, when Noah sobers up, he knows and he curses uh, the generation of his son. Again, curse parallel to Genesis chapter 3. It's painful, uh, but sin causes great pain and anguish soul. One of the reasons that there are nursing homes and emergency rooms, Genesis 3, Shem and Japheth are blessed, but again, the earth was clean after the flood, but now it's sullied again. And my, how it is sullied today with lawlessness seemingly at every hand. Subtle reminder that God will have to raise up someone else. He does. He will. We know Him as the Son of God, Christ the Savior. Uh, nevertheless, God is uh, blessed in verses 26 to 27 uh, with a righteous seed. Noah blesses the Lord in faith for the remnant of his uh, older sons. And it's another beautiful reminder in all of the fallenness of the world in which we live. All of the hunger, the warfare, the strife. Uh, God always has a remnant. He always preserves men and women and boys and girls by redeeming them and keeping them. As a reminder that in that remnant, he's always starting over. Because the failure of man does not stop God from working great success through his only begotten son uh, who uh, gives us new hearts to walk after him. Hearts that would beat after the Lord of glory. Beautiful reminder of this, and we're going to turn in your New Testaments to uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2 and verse 15. It's a reminder of uh, who we are. 
Uh, we're, to, we're to act not as Israel of old, uh, that we may prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's who we are. God is light, Genesis chapter 1. He makes His sons the sons of light and daughters the daughters of light. And we bear that image wherever we go. And we should shine brightly uh, like everyone in this room who has an automobile and it drives, uh, uh, my car has a, a dim switch. Yeah, I don't know how you dim your lights. But I know you dim them, or you should, when facing ongoing traffic. But we should not dim the light of our lives. Yeah, we face a lot of ongoing traffic. But in our spiritual lives, we don't have to dim the light of our lives for the glory and majesty of our great God. Notice as well, uh, verse 16, something definitive of our lives, holding fast the word of life. Holding it fast. I have this profound conviction, I hope I'm profoundly wrong, that the church today in America is in profound retreat we must not retreat. We must hold fast the word of life because it defines us. It's the word of God. We cannot retreat from it. There are no back doors when it comes to the truth. We're to hold it fast. So in the failure of our text this morning uh, with Noah and Our reminder is the great hope and promise that God will raise up a righteous servant who does not fail. Uh, we know in the Old Testament that it's not the nation of Israel because they apostatize. And even when they're taken into captivity and returned to the land, they apostatize again because they crucify the Lord of glory. So our hope is not in the nation of Israel. It is in the Son of God, Christ. But it's very interesting uh, in our text in Genesis 9 that Messiah comes from the line of Shem, Luke 3.36. In other words, Jesus is the servant who will not fail. He's God the Son. He cannot fail. If you would turn with me, uh, Old Testament text, uh, Second Servant Song, Isaiah chapter 49. Very insightful here of the success of the Son. Uh, verses 1 to 4, uh, the servant's son is commissioned beginning with his consecration and installation in the womb of Mary. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. His service is specified in the second verse. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He has concealed me. 
And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. So God makes his mouth a sharp sword and a select arrow. The metaphor, I believe, is the Word of God in the judicial function of the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4. The Word of the Lord is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do the judicial function of the Word of God. Christ comes in that judicial function. Another text, Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. And in His hand He held seven stars, and out of His mouth came a two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. It's very interesting in Hebrews chapter 4, the author is warning professing Jewish Christians who are pondering the sin of apostasy and forsaking Christ and going back to their old religion. He's telling them that you are about to bring a sharp two-edged sword upon yourself. And therefore, don't, don't consummate what you are pondering and forsaking Christ and His church. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16, very interesting. Uh, when you come to chapter 2 and 3, uh, John the Apostle brings some very, very harsh warning passages to five of the churches because they're compromising their faith. So that Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16 is a reminder that they too are made liable to the judicial function of the Word of God. And that Christ will come and do battle with them and make war against them and they will lose. It's not just the evil nations of the world that, that surround us, uh, because certainly there are many, uh, but it's Men and women who profess to know Christ, but who are tragically and profoundly compromising their faith and walking with the world instead of shining brightly as lights and holding fast to the word of life. In other words, we must respond properly to his word in this life because certainly we will face it in the afterlife. And it's... uh, Profound judicial functions. Here again, I remind you, the author of the book of Hebrews, uh, all things in our hearts are laid bare before Him. He sees it all. Uh, the fact that Isaiah is uh, telling us that In the shadow of the hand of God, He has concealed me and hidden me in His quiver. Reminding us, I believe the prophet is, that uh, the arrow, the sword, is ready for use, but comes incognito, absent the fanfare of national expectation. 
It's one of the great failures of the nation of Israel when Christ was came. He was uh, really, really born, born with all the cattle and wrapped in swaddling clothes. I mean, no, Messiah was to come with fanfare and bands of playing and uh, all the nation, Gentile nations of the world be destroyed and the nation of Israel will be exalted preeminently. No, he comes incognito, almost hidden, unless you know what to look for. Many of the shepherds did. But in terms of the Illuminati of the nation, they never really saw him for who he was. Because they didn't understand. They should have understood because of the prophet Isaiah. The first servant song, Isaiah chapter 42, in verse 2, He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. And so again, he uh, has a very humble birth and very humble parents because he's not going to draw attention to himself. He's going to draw attention to his heavenly Father. Uh, Messiah's identity, I think this is very critical for today, is made explicit in Isaiah 49.3. God said to him, You are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. So the servant son in one majestic eternal person will assume the failed role of the nation and do what's right for the glory of God. He sums up in himself what Israel was to be but was not because they forsook him. Tragic reminder of the failure of men. And given the weight of his commission, Messiah recoils from the weight of his duty. But he recovers in faith, overwhelmed. Uh, but he will not be overcome. He trusts in God who will vindicate him and give him success. Look at Isaiah 49, verses 5-6. to And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, in order that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord. And my God is my strength. He says to me, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nation. In a moment, he's going to rescue those whom God's going to preserve for the nation and then become a light to all the nations. Meaning that you and I owe our entire spiritual success to His work as a light to the nations. So God is speaking and tasks His Son with His mission. First, He's going to recover the preserved among uh, Jacob and gather Israel. We know that that occurs in the Gospels because uh, He stands up a remnant of twelve symbolizing the twelve tribes. Then His mission expands universally, as I've suggested, a light to the nations. Light is a metaphor of salvation. It's very important to recognize, as, as you might expect in terms of the four servant songs, there's always a debate over uh, who is the servant. Well, the New Testament is very clear. Luke chapter 2 and verse 32. Uh, Christ is the servant son. He is the fulfillment of the four servant songs 
of the prophet Isaiah. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Jesus alludes to Isaiah in John 8, 12, and 9, 5. Jesus spoke to them. I'm the light of the world. In that one singular moment, he's identifying himself with Isaiah 49. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Christ is the servant son. John chapter 9, verse 5. Jesus again says, I am the light of the world. If it's a metaphor for salvation, there's only salvation in him. He is the true light of the glory of God. He is the answer to the failure of Noah, to the failure of the sons of God in Genesis 6, and to the tragic failure in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. The answer is the Son, always the Son, only the Son. very interesting that uh, the Apostle Paul identifies himself with the Messianic mission in his turning to the Gentiles. So the language of Isaiah 49 carries over uh, to the great Apostle Paul and his ministry that was to the Gentiles. Acts 13.47 For thus the Lord has commanded me, I placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And what do the Gentiles do? Do you recall <laughs> what the Gentiles do when they hear that? When they hear that, wait a minute, we thought we were excluded, but now we know that God has included us. How do they respond? Acts 13.48, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. This incredible reminder that you and I owe, owe our very faith in Christ to eternal appointments, to the power of the Spirit of God that gathers the preserved among the nations. Acts 26-23, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of His resurrection from the dead, He should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. God is not going to be denied. And what's the answer? In His Son. He's going to gather a remnant from among the nation and then turn and gather the nations. All that have been appointed to eternal life. The point of multiple fulfillments is the success of the servant in saving and fulfilling the eternal purposes of God in incredible success. You go to a place like an emergency room, a nursing home, all who belong to the Son of God will be raised because of the success of the God-man upon the cross. He defeats the curse of death. Where all others have failed, Adam, the sons of God, Noah, and the nation, Christ will succeed in testimony that there's only spiritual success in Him. No other religion 
Book of Acts. There's no other name under heaven. Furthermore, he inaugurates the end time restoration in himself to effect a expansive, majestic salvation. And this is in anticipation of our glorious future. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 65. Incredible reminder here of, of, uh, of what awaits us. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 21, uh, metaphorical language, we are uh, reminded um, that we will not ever again be taken into captivity. And, and no longer will there be the death of infants, which very tragic, because God's going to fix all of that. There will no longer be mourning heard in the daughters of Jerusalem because they've been invaded, because Christ is going to fix that as well. Look in particular at my favorite, verses 24 to 25. And it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. In eternity, we won't have to ask for anything because God knows it and will provide immediately uh, based upon the success of God's Son. Incredible. I pray for lots of things. <laughs> More often than not, God refuses as rightfully He should because my requests are somewhat worldly and uh, silly, but in heaven they'll all be granted because of the eternality of the provisions of the success won by the servant Son. Verse 25, and the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food and they shall do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Evil totally vacated in eternity based upon the work of the servant's son. All this language is anticipatory of the removal of the curse great promise uh, in the great Son. It is very instructive that Christ never failed in His encounters with the devil and the multiple attempts to compromise Him by the false prophets and teachers in Israel throughout His life. He never compromised. You and I, conversely, are a bit like Noah. We we, we, we do sometimes compromise. We, we forget who we are and where we are and what we're to be about. And thankfully, there is forgiveness in the cross. But He never failed. Never. Thus, the repeated failures that we've been studying in Genesis are, are sad. We'll continue to study them. Abraham and Lot. The sons but not the eternal Son of God. And they pave the way for the coming of Christ and the unfailing purposes of God who will gather an eternal remnant unto Himself into another garden which Satan can never ever enter again. And there will only be the majesty of the presence of God, meeting 
every desire of our hearts. Provisions for eternity. We start in a garden. We study the book of the Revelation. We end up back in a garden. Based upon what? That's right. The success of the eternal Son. And so all of the failures of uh, Adam and Eve and the sons of God, now Noah tragically, are our reminder every day that our great Savior is the answer. And that we should remember how He taught us to pray. Lead us not to temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.